you have your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 1, as we pick up our study in the book of Exodus, slowing ourselves down a little bit, we will consider this um, chapter this morning as we now turn to the Word of God. Let us now hear the Word of God, Exodus chapter 1, I'll read the entirety of its chapter. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was already in Egypt. And Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Look, the people of children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they they multiply, and it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us. And so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh's supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra and the name of the other Puah. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on their birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was, because the midwives feared God, that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all of his people, saying, Every son who is born shall you cast into the river, but every daughter you shall save alive. Thus ends the reading of the word of God. Let us pray. Our Father before us is truth given to us in a propositional form, in a way that is principalized so that this principle is true for all generations, for all people. And as we come to this book of Exodus, we pray that you would open our eyes of faith, that we can see the beautiful pictures, the illustrations in this story that are object lessons for us to realize and know who we are, who you are, and who Christ is, and what great things you have done for us. And so we ask now, as the preaching of the word commences in this chapter, that the Spirit of God would come 
and empower the preacher as well as the hearer that we might hear your voice speak to us this day. Apply these truths to us corporately as a church and to us individually as members of her for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There in your liturgy, I've put a sheet of paper, a half sheet of paper. I want to briefly go over this to kind of set the course here of Exodus before we get too much of a start. I want to back it up a little bit and see briefly Genesis, the book that we just finished in a very quick and broad approach. Now Genesis, oftentimes people think of Genesis, if I were to ask what is the theme of Genesis, what is its predominant theme, some people would say uh, the beginnings. And while the word Genesis does mean that, the actual theme of the whole book of Genesis, which includes the beginning of creation and the beginning of the sin uh, and the beginning of the seed of the serpent and those things, but it really is broader than that. It actually includes, uh, in that beginning part of the beginning of Genesis, the creation, and then God creates man in the likeness, in his own image, he creates male and female. He puts them in a garden, which is a temple, and as we've discussed, the temple is this God space, this intersection between heaven and earth where God dwells among his creation, and particularly man, his image. Now, man's purpose in the world was to promote God's glory throughout all of the earth in his image role. We're like a mirror that God's glory would shine down upon his image and then reflect out into the world. And man's purpose in this image was twofold. He was to serve God as a priest and in that keeping work, he put him in the garden to keep it and that keeping is a protecting. It is the protecting the holiness of God and, and protecting it against unholy intruders. But second, it was a priestly work. It was a kingly work. And the second word there would be to till the ground. In that sense, it is to take now and cultivate and like God was a creator, the image would then cultivate and take God's wisdom out into the world. And that's the work of the king. Now we're talking about in the pre-fall time and what the nature of really his kingly work is. It is to take the great sovereign God and reflect the beauty, truth, goodness, and his wisdom out into the world. And that is part of the cultivation or the way that he puts it in Genesis, to till uh, the garden. This is the word cultivate. We see the great illustration of this in Psalm 72, when the King Solomon here in this psalm is depicted, and even his great wisdom is known throughout all of the world, such that even Gentile nations, such as the Queen of Sheba, would then make a pilgrimage to come and see uh, the things that were spoken of about him. And so king and priest... Now man falls into sin, and what God has allowed in his decree is for us to see even deeper his purposes and his character of grace and love and all of these things against a very dark backdrop. 
Now, God commences his work of redemption then in this Genesis 3, in this great antithesis between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, in order to recreate a new world with a new redeemed humanity to fulfill his original creational purposes of taking his glory throughout all of the world so that as the seas, the waters do cover the seas, as Habakkuk and Isaiah both would quote, so the knowledge of the glory would fill the earth. And so what we have here is a renewal And taking this and now renewing a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth in the work of Jesus Christ, which was prophesied in that seed of the woman. And God's redemptive purposes then highlights his grace of election in Abraham and his seed. So if we thought about Genesis, a key theme in the book of Genesis is God's electing grace. That's, we're going to see, actually, from very early on, then it's going to trace its way all the way through. And that's going to bring us all the way up to the book of Exodus. Now, Exodus is a picture of redemption in order for this recreation of this old fallen world to take place. He was redeeming a new humanity, and he was reestablishing the temple, which was the garden before the fall. All for the glory of God. And what we see in Exodus, it's a picture book. It's a very vivid picture book, a story book with images. And it illustrates in a striking way the theology of redemption and worship. And that's what we see in a key theme in Exodus 15, 13, which says, You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. And so what we're going to see in Exodus, divided up into five main parts, but two main aspects. The first part of that is going to be redemption, and the whole last half of it is going to be the establishment of the tabernacle. So many people think that Exodus is simply limited to the Exodus, But there is a purpose for the exodus. There is a a telos for our salvation, and that is the worship of God. And so that's why the last half of the book of Exodus pertains to the construction of the tabernacle, that we, the people of God, might be restored in worship to our great creator. Now, there are five main divisions in the book of Exodus. Again, I'm just following along here on this, this handout. It is, number one, the need for redemption which we see the bondage going on of the Hebrews in chapters 1 through 6. In chapters 7 through 11, we see the might of this Redeemer, the great power of God. We see in chapters 12 through 18 the character of redemption. And in in chapters 19 through 24, we see this establishment of a corporate Adam, I'm going to speak more about that when we get to those chapters, but we'll even mention that briefly here as we see Israel as being God's firstborn, and that relates to his only begotten son and Jesus, but we see this corporate Adam that God was then setting up as a priest, yes, to the world, and as a king who ultimately would be founded in Jesus Christ 
himself as the king and the priest, but in union with his people, there is a corporate nature to our kingdom that we now have with Jesus as being co-reigning together for the sake of God's glory going throughout all the world. Now, the fifth division here is this establishment of the tabernacle, which is a rehearsal or an echo back to that garden in which God originally put man. But now in this new redemptive created world, we're going to see this tabernacle, which is a picture again. And everything about that is a symbol of a true heavenly reality of which we will begin to unpack when we get there. As we turn over on the back side, let me just show you some of the pictures Because every part of Exodus, while it's a historical narrative and it really did happen and everything happens here, there was a great picture throughout all of the pages that we are to capture. When we look at Egypt, for instance, it's a picture of the world. We'll speak a little more on that in just a moment. Pharaoh is the enemy of primarily uh, God himself. We'll see this. But he was an enemy of God's people. And ultimately, we see in him the devil who was overthrown by Christ. Now, we see bondage, which is this dominion, this tyranny of sin, of which we are in bondage and have great need of delivery. The groanings of the Hebrews point to the pain and the suffering of one in their lost condition. The Moses is the mediator, a small letter M, Messiah, Uh, He is the one that is chosen to represent, and then later we will see in Jesus this, this one true mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Moses is filling that picture here, however, in the, in the Exodus narrative. Passover night was this of the security that a believer finds under the blood, which is the price of our redemption, and it would be that which would then free us by our Redeemer through the death of the firstborn, the shedding of the blood applied to our lives and to our households. And then the exodus from Egypt then is this great delivery from this yoke of bondage and a judicial separation from the world. The Red Sea crossing identifies our union with Christ in his death and resurrection and the entryway into the new world. And we see even uh, this in 1 Corinthians 10 that speaks about the baptism of Moses and drinking of the rock, which rock was Christ, identifying through this Red Sea crossing and the journey there. So we see sacramental language being used even of this Red Sea crossing. The wilderness journey with its trials and testing, which God always provided for to meet every need, is the experience that we have as Christians in our pilgrimage and in our sanctification journey along the way. So there's a lot to learn from here in these pictures. The giving of the law in Exodus 20, we see here, the nature of God is revealed himself by the giving of his law to his people, so that when they obey the law, it actually reflects upon the love of God and the goodness of God and the blessings of God, so that even the nations, Deuteronomy 4 would say, would look and see what great nation is there that God would give them such a beautiful law as they did, as they have. 
So the giving of law was really not a negative thing at all. It's a very positive thing that the very heart of it reveals the nature of God. And so we, we take this into consideration as we are called to walk in obedience and submission, which is required of us. But we often find in our flesh that we cannot obey the law, and that is why we have to have a Redeemer to save us out of the bondage of sin, which is because of our disobedience. Now, the tabernacle, with all of its various forms of beauty and glory and the furnishings, is the place where the heaven and earth come together. Where, where God dwells among his creation and where he bids his elect people to come through the blood and through the priesthood into his presence so that he can fellowship and commune with his people. And here we're going to find in the New Testament that that tabernacle is ultimately fulfilled in Christ in union with his people, just like today, and where the reality of it is right here, on this earth, united to heaven in the body of Christ, we now even sacramentally will come together and eat of a physical food, but united to Christ spiritually in such a way that heaven and earth come together as we gather in his name and as we come into the sanctuary to bring praise and worship to him. As we pray to him, as we commune with him, as we fellowship with him, we are tasting already the new heavens and the new earth even in our time today. And so we have the beauty of all of these images and, and these pictures given to us in Exodus. So as we come into this book, we find in the very beginning of chapter 1, the people are in hard bondage. But we come to chapter 40, the very end of it, and that's where the Shekinah glory of God comes down and fills the tabernacle. So from chapter 1 to chapter 40, we have a beautiful story, and we're going to learn where we are in this story, even today, and where we live. Exodus shows us a picture of our salvation and our restoration of this fallen world in the work of Jesus Christ, the work of God through Jesus Christ. And we have to accept all of this the way God has revealed it to us. We have to accept God on his terms. And we have to embrace every bit of this. This is not a smorgasbord. We don't pick what we like and, and spit out what we don't. We have to take it all in. And the first of which we're going to see today in this bondage is our own depravity. And we have to acknowledge that we are sinners. And we have to own that to the full capacity of how God says that we are. And if we do not do that, we will not see the need for his saving grace and his ongoing need in our lives if we cannot acknowledge who we are before him. In chapter 1, there are three sections that I will cover this morning. And the first section is verses 1 through 7 where we see the plan unfolding. The plan. There's a new humanity we are introduced to Jacob's family and to his sons, and they all were identified with Jacob here. And this family of Jacob is identified with the family of Abraham. Jacob is Abraham's grandson, and he is the chosen one. Uh, after Isaac was chosen, and then Jacob was chosen, 
over Esau, and now here the covenant people of God and these 12 patriarchs representing now these 70 people are now in Egypt. This is God's elect people. And if you go back and read Genesis, see what brought us up here, you're going to see quite a, a, a checkered history of their past. There's incest and immorality, there's, there's murder, there is um, premeditated um, mass murder even, and, and anger and wrath and all of the, the deeds of the flesh. You're going to see, and yet these are God's chosen people. You see, we're not any better than the world apart from Christ. We are fully as much a sinner as they are. And we have to understand that the thing that sets us apart from them is only the grace of God in our lives. God chose this people. God was merciful, not giving them what they deserve. He was gracious to them and giving them what they did not deserve. But yet this was his plan. This was his people. This was his sovereign choice. This was his wisdom. And with this covenant people, he will establish them as a corporate Adam. We're going to find these kinds of echoes back to the original covenant head of the human race by which we have all fallen. The dominion mandate date was given to Adam in the very beginning, before the fall, when they, he says to man and woman, to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and take dominion. We find the very language here echoing back to that in verse 7. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now, this was not only God's original design for, for man to then multiply, to take his glory throughout all of the world, but it was now a key tenet in the very covenant that God established with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and this people. To Abraham, you might recall when he says in Genesis thirteen sixteen, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. He reiterates that again to Jacob when he says in Genesis 28, 14, your offspring will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south, you and your offspring and all your families and through your family, all of the earth will be blessed. See, there's a corporate Adam here that would then give birth to the last Adam, Jesus Christ. Now God was establishing his people. He was growing his people. And just like he had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, now they were in Egypt and they were multiplying into a, a great company of Hebrews. And through them, God would illustrate his reversal of the effects of the curse. He would show them and us through a pictorial image of the new heaven and the new earth and that would replace the old fallen one. By this time of the setting in Exodus chapter 1, 
It's some 400 years after Jacob and the 70 people settled there in Egypt, and they became a great company of people. I think the scripture has revealed that there were 600,000 men. A lot of the estimates of commentators estimate it to be some 2 million people that were now gathered in the land of Goshen in Egypt. The time was ripe. The time for God's word to be fulfilled in this first installment of the covenant of Abraham to bring forth his people into the land of promise. But before that, Jacob's family fell upon a very harsh oppression in Egypt. And that's part of the picture that we need to see is Egypt is a, is a picture of the world. Leaving the promised land and going to Egypt echoes back to the time in which Adam left the garden. He went into the world because of his sin. But here Egypt is, is, a, is a land that is a very dry and arid land. It rained very little in Egypt, and, and so the source of their life was in the great river Nile. It's unlike the promised land where God would send the early rains and the latter rains, and he would bless the, 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 the land with water from heaven itself, where he would then end up raining down his blessings. That's unlike Egypt. Egypt had to rely upon the gathering of those things and then coming into the swell of a river. And so the, the Egyptians without the Nile would, would not be a, a sustainable culture there. They, they worshipped the river. As we will see in due time, Egypt had a deep belief in, in many gods and even in the afterlife. And they worshipped the creature and not the creator. As Romans 1 would so aptly say, professing to be wise, they became fools. And they changed the glory of an incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature than the, rather than the creator. And that was happening very clearly in Egypt. They made gods of the created world, one of which was um, Osiris. And Osiris was a very important of the Egyptian deities. Osiris was the god of the underworld. He also symbolized death and resurrection and the cycle of the Nile floods of Egypt that they relied on for their agricultural fertility. The Nile River was an important feature in Egypt. It was the source of water, which is the source of life to them. The world is characterized by its worship of creatures. And Egypt just depicts that. It's not hard to imagine that a people that grew up in that background, in that culture, would be so quick to make a golden calf once they got out and lost their sight for a bit. And who really led them out? We'll cover that in Exodus 32. 
But not only was the land of Egypt a picture of the world who did not acknowledge God, it was ruled by a wicked king who directed his evil against God's people. And that's what we see beginning here in verse 8. It says that there was a king that arose who knew not Joseph. We know that Joseph had favor with one of the Egyptian uh, kings years ago for interpreting the dream, and there was a lot of favor that was given him. But now, situations changed. This king that arose in Egypt was most likely, and the timing, and all of it works out, to be a Hyksos king. A Hyksos was a, was a people that were not native Egyptians. And they were of a Semitic background, and they infiltrated into the land of Egypt. And at first, they adopted the customs and became very much a part of society in Egypt. But there was a time in which the dynasty of the pharaoh uh, had a disconnect because of the lack of a, a, a pharaoh king's son that was born. And so the Hyksos rose up in that particular vacuum of power and then established rule and appointed a king. And so this Hyksos king was not a native Egyptian, but was one of the foreigners who then rose up in power in the land. And this might explain the fact that when he looked out upon the Hebrews who had multiplied in the land of Goshen and throughout all the land, he looked at them and he became worried and concerned. And he, he said, they have become more and mightier than we are. Now that would not have been true if that particular pharaoh was a native Egyptian. The Egyptians by that time would have far outnumbered the Hebrews, but that, would, that could be true if this was a Hyksos king with Hyksos uh, immigrants who had now lived in the land for some time and have risen to the state of power. The Hebrews could have easily outnumbered the Hyksos and the Hyksos pharaoh king could have been very concerned that because of their, their favor of, that God had shown them, the blessing of the multitude that they become, that if there was a problem, they could rise up and join with the native Egyptians to overthrow the Hyksos power. And so they have this, this, this paranoia that is going to drive them. And see, that is their character. They're the ones that came in and infiltrated and rose up in the vacuum of power, and they're the ones that claimed the throne. And so now they're thinking that that could be true of the Hebrews as well. And so they suppress them to harsh labor. Now, often what we fear or are paranoid about is due to our own character or the way that we think about things, not necessarily the way they are. It's the, our worldview. We see and judge people by how we see, not necessarily how they are. It is often the flaws in our own character that we see most vividly in others. I think this was part of the teaching that Jesus was saying about the, the splinter in your neighbor's eye and the big beam in your own eye. We have two pieces of wood hanging out of eyes, and they have some similarity to them, but we 
oftentimes judge people based upon how we're seeing things or what's true of us based upon our own flaws. There's a proverb that says the wicked flee when no one is pursuing because they think that others are just like them and and that's what likely gave rise to the Hyksos fear is because they rose up and did this then certainly others will too. See, the world is greedy for power and control. And when they see God's people increase, as they see God's favor upon us, as was happening in Egypt, they feel threatened that their power will be taken away. So they want to subdue God's people. They want to control them with oppression and suppression this way. And this wicked Pharaoh pictures the great enemy of God himself, the devil. See, we're, we're hearkening back to that great conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And what we see in this great cosmic battle is really a battle between God and the devil. Now, we know how it turns out. I mean, one is the creator, the other is the creature. But this great battle between God and the devil takes place here on the earth in the lives of men. The devil will attack the very image of God. Us. See, if you want to rewrite history, if you want to destroy the truth, one of the tactics is to attack the symbols that depicts the story. Attack the symbols. That's why you're being attacked. You're a symbol. That's why your family's being attacked. It's a symbol. Everything that reveals truth about God, the devil will be attacking it. Within our own historical context, we are seeing this very thing going on in our own country today. We have certain politically motivated, power-hungry people groups who are attacking many of our nation's symbols. They are doing so in order to rewrite history, to fabricate a different and a false narrative, in order to suppress the truth in hopes that they can gain control. It's a classic tactic. It's an old thing. It's been going on since the very beginning. And so we shouldn't be surprised if the the greatest strength of the enemy's oppression is aimed right at Christians because of what we stand for. It's the very nature of why Cain rose up and killed Abel. 1 John tells us it's because Abel was righteous. That's it. It makes no sense. It makes no sense that someone that's righteous and good and, and pleasant and, and loving should be the object of that kind. But, but that is exactly how the enemy works. Now, one commentator pointed out this, quote, How much then, dear reader, do we owe the restraining power of God, which holds in check the evil passions of men and thus allows us to live a quiet and peaceable life? But let the withholding hand of God be withdrawn for a short season, and even now his people will be sorely afflicted too. 
Sometimes God does withhold that restraining hand in order to chasten and sanctify his people, but not to neglect them or destroy them. Now, the Egyptians made the Hebrews labor with great rigor, assigned taskmasters over them to to afflict them, and their masters were unrelenting in their pressure. Verse 14 says, And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar and brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. But the scripture says the more they persecuted them, the more they grew. Times of severest trial have always been times of God's blessing of his people. Even under the most unfavorable and undesirable circumstances, that is a time where God is at work. The more fiercely have burned the fires of persecution, the stronger faith has waxed, as one writer has spoken. Persecution refines the people of God and it further separates them from the world. We begin seeing in those refining fires who truly is a believer and those who are imposters. And even the psalmist says, because of this chastening in Psalm 119.67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept thy word. Do we find some identity in that? When we kind of go unrestrained and and unchecked and and without the the sufferings of perhaps a, a fatherly spanking would bring us back into correction. We just are left to ourselves. We go astray. But when the sufferings come and the chastening comes, now we learn to love and keep God's word, for that is the sphere of wonderful blessing. Now we're introduced to Pharaoh, this king who knew not Joseph. And he was the driver and the leader of all this persecution. And in the last portion of this chapter, verses 15 through 22, he attempts now to kill the Hebrew uh, males by then exhorting the midwives of the Hebrews, if it's a male, when she gives birth, kill him. If it's a female, you can let her live. When that failed, he told the Egyptians to do the same thing. See, this theme of infanticide is not new. It's a very old theme because it goes back to the seed and the seed. It is directed by the devil himself, directing his aim at the seed of the woman, of which through these Hebrews would be the cradle of the one Messiah, the seed who would then crush the head of the serpent. We see in Herod's time this same narrative being played out all over again when the wise men come to visit and they inform them that the king is now born. And then he sends out a decree throughout all of the land to kill all of the male babies two years old and under. 
And while Pharaoh went after the seed himself, here we see Pharaoh going after the channel through which that promised redeemer would come. It's the same tactic. It's the same tactic. And one thing we should do as we are going through the scriptures, we should begin having the eyes of faith that the scripture is now showing us the shape of things, showing us a signature of things. An important war tactic employed by naval submarines and P-3 Orion aircraft and others is something called acoustic signatures. I used to live in Jacksonville, Florida, a Navy base that was predominantly all about sending P-3s out off the coast of Florida to track the Russian submarines through these sonic devices. And they knew where all the Russian submarines were. They knew the specifics of each one of them. They knew where they were at any given moment off of our coast. With sophisticated acoustical technology, uh, a P-3 or, or a submarine can hear particular characteristics of, of ships in the ocean who give out a particular characteristic, particular and specific to that ship. And they learn this acoustical signature so that they learn which ship that is. Is it friendly or is it a foe? Is it a cargo ship or is it a warrior ship? Where is it from? What is the origin? What is it carrying? All of this then through this identity, through this signature. With a fair amount of precision there to determine these things. And when they know the specific ship they're dealing with, they can know the details about that and how the ship operates and, and what its purpose is. Last year, we all were privy to this tragic news of Ocean Gate's Titan, which imploded on the way down to a voyage to the Titanic with five people on board. And shortly after its descent, uh, it imploded, killing all five people. But our Navy heard the sound of that implosion and could pinpoint the vicinity in which it happened and had a hunch what had happened shortly after, even though they kept it for days. And they did so in case if they were wrong, because it was an anomaly on their acoustic uh, signature. But they said it sounded like an implosion. And so they left the search crew going, should there be some hope, but there was not. And, but they heard it uh, just shortly after the descent. See, signatures like this identify objects. It's like a detective going onto a crime scene and picking off all of the fingerprints so that they can determine the identity of the criminal once there's a match that's been made to the crime scene. Signatures reveal and identify who and what is behind the signature that they leave. The devil also has a signature. His activity can be identified by his characteristics, his plots, his schemes, and his attacks. And we clearly see his signature and fingerprints all over the place. In Scripture, we see repetitive themes, and we have this clarity of how he works and the object after which he's after and what his purposes are and who he's trying to destroy and whose name he's trying to defame. And when we see his signature among us 
When we see his fingerprints in our body, we can be assured that he or his minions are presently at work. See, faith is that which is the evidence of things unseen. And God has given his people to be able to discern the spirits with the eyes of faith according to his word that he has revealed. And that's why it behooves us to know the word and to know this truth so that we, through the eyes of faith, can make the discernments and see the fingerprints and so that we can be on guard. The devil will attack the very things of God by making war with his people who represent God here upon the earth. He will attack us corporately. He will attack us individually. He will attack our families. And he doesn't care a thing about us. He really is after defaming the name of God. But the seed of the woman is destined to win this war. And it is in this very context of oppression and infanticide that Moses was born and preserved and even grew up in Pharaoh's house. What an irony. Quite unsuspecting of what God was about to do with him against that regime. See, the lesson from Exodus 1 is that, that there is bondage of God's elect people, a severe bondage that only God could relieve and only God can deliver. And even though the Hebrews were God's elect people, and even though he favored them, they still needed to be redeemed from their bondage. Their bondage in the world was a picture not only of the external enemy, of the world system and of Satan, But there is also the internal enemy of sin that keeps us in bondage. And that is what we have to be delivered from. Sin is the powerful internal enemy so strong that we cannot overcome it in our own strength. Sin is a disposition against God. Sin is the nature in us that produces sinful actions, sinful thoughts, sinful attitudes, sinful emotions. Sin is disobedience to God. It's rebellion. It is pride. It is autonomous. It is insubordination. It is disrespect and disdain for God. And this condition that occurred in the fall and has captured the entirety of humanity in its bondage. And it affects everyone and it affects the entirety of this creation. See, sin is our signature. We can be identified pretty easily by our character, and all of us are sinners. That's what characterizes humanity. And yet, it's deplorable in the sight of God. 
God is angry at the sinner. We've heard it said God is angry at the sin, but not the sinner. That is absolutely a false doctrine. Sin is not a goo that you can separate from the person. Sin is the very nature of the person himself. And Psalm 5 says that God is angry at sinners. And we have no power over sin. It has dominion over us. And that's why John chapter 8 speaks of it in this way. Everyone who practices sin, which is everybody, is a slave to sin. And what we see in Egypt is this, this slave market, this slavery to sin. That's our picture. That's our life. We were in bondage. We're enslavement under harsh and unrelenting taskmasters who cannot emancipate ourselves. The enemy is too strong for us for us to do anything about it. And the bitterness and the consequences that it yields in life and of the despair and the drudgery and the bitterness and the lack of peace and the hatred and the anger and the immorality and all of these things are something that just self-destructs us. There is no hope in that kind of condition. What God has done for us is as much as save us from ourselves as he has from the world and the devil. Sin is something that self-destructs. But unless you understand your problem and feel the anguish of sin, and unless you feel the utter helplessness in yourself to overcome your sin problems and your sin issues, your terrible situation, unless you can come to that place, you will never see a need for a Savior. Our slavery to sin is our servitude to the serpent. The blindness of our pride and the deception of our depravity keep us from seeing the problem as it is. To ignore the problem will not make it go away. It will only exasperate it. And the worst possible thing we can do is not admit our sins. When we do not own up to our sins, when we do not acknowledge them, when we do not confess them and repent from them, they will continue to grow deeper into our character, shaping the person that we are. And our pride is our worst enemy because it keeps us from seeing who we are. God gives grace to the humble that can admit and see this. See, we don't like to admit our faults, and we certainly don't like other people to see us for who we truly are. So we often whitewash ourselves like the Pharisees did, or we put a veneer upon us so that we appear to be something that we truly are not. And the biggest deception is that we ourselves often do not see our own problem. We've got a big beam in our eye. While we're looking at the splinter in someone else's. And all of this works against us. It further aggravates our own taskmasters to be harsher with our conditions, more bitter in our spirit. And pretty soon, we're just beaten down by our own sins. 
The Hebrews were in bondage. Life was hard. It was difficult. And there was little they can do to change their situation. But they were not without hope. See, they were God's chosen people who had been given a promise. In 1 Corinthians 15, 56 and 7 says, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's hope in the seed of the woman. There is hope in the covenant of Abraham. There is hope in the covenant with Isaac. There is hope with the covenant of Jacob. There is hope in the body of Christ for whom he has died himself and has redeemed us and and led us out of the bondage of ourselves and our own wicked behavior. God has given these promises to Abraham. The Hebrews were inheritors of that promise. And the more they knew that more was to come. They were so clearly kept their identity in Egypt that Joseph himself said, When I die, and and many years later, many generations later, 400 something years later, When you come out of Egypt and you go back to the promised land that God has promised, you take my bones with you. Do not leave them here. So God, by grace, maintained their very distinct identity. And they identified with the God of Abraham and the God of Jacob. And God was faithful to what he promised, and time was now close at hand for their redemption. And in the next chapter, we're going to be introduced to Moses, the very figurehead who would lead them out of Egypt toward their intended and blessed promised land that God had promised them years before. Now today we have Jesus, the true Redeemer, the true Savior of all of our enemies, from all of our sins, pictured here in hard bondage, from the world system and from Satan himself. And if the church turns away like she has done over the course of her centuries, if she turns away from the truth, she will be led again into a Babylonian exile, which is another picture for us But there is always hope in repentance and always restoration for the true church who turns back to our God and Savior and to rest our hope in the one true Redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ. We have hope today. In the midst of all that's going on in the world, our hope is in King Jesus who has come, who is our Passover lamb, who is our great high priest, who is the king of kings, who is the great one who is reigning over all the nations that has now been rightfully gained by his obedience. And now he is the one that we serve and every knee shall bow. We do that today willingly, but one day everybody will do it. And so we give him all the praise and the glory for what he has done among us today. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this pictorial lesson of ourselves. As we see your people here in Egypt, we find ourselves among that lot. By your grace, we find ourselves among them, our fathers. And yet, as we observe their lives, we find that truly we are not very different 
were born into sin and we have sinned volitionally and we continue to sin even ignorantly many times. And yet there is a redeemer in God's elect and how thankful we are for Jesus. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for the power that you have shown us in that salvation and the power that you continue to show us today. And We pray that you would open our eyes of faith that we can see your signature and your fingerprints all over the place in this world that you have redeemed. And we also might discern the spirits through the word and through your spirit. That we would not succumb to the snares of the enemy and be drawn away from the very God who loves us. Increase our love for you this day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.